Hello, Hello Internet. Internet. I'm Finn Ross Russell. I'm John Lucas. It's Saturday, May the 14th. Welcome to Turin. It's the one we've all been waiting for. Coming up, it's grand final day. It's grand final day. It's grand blooming final day. Salutations one and all. Yes, that's right. Some people have birthdays, some people have Christmas, but we have the grand final day of the Eurovision Song Contest. And here to join me, our own ESC Insight personal Santa Claus. It's the wonderful John Lucas. I mean, I know I've eaten a lot of pasta this past week, Finn, but I don't think I've put on that much weight. <laughs> I mean, I was referring to the beard, but you know, sure? you took it in the direction you wanted to. I just meant you're spreading joy and love and happy Eurovision final day wishes to our listeners. Yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> something like that, something like that. This is it. It's happening today. How are you feeling? It's funny. You wait so long for this to come around as a Eurovision fan. You know, you wait all year for it to come. And then suddenly it happens and you get to the semi-finals first and everything suddenly speeds up so much and it becomes a massive blur. This whole week has just felt like it's been on rapid triple time. And yeah, we're now careening towards the grand final. And then what comes after, of course, is the, the crash, the post, the famed post-Eurovision blues. But, uh, we'll talk about that another time. I think what's really exciting for me as someone where this is my first Eurovision on the ground is that watching at home, I always have so many different traditions of things that I like to do around this day. So I like to pick my favorite countries from the show. I like to make food specifically from those countries and hold a big party. And mostly that Saturday, I will literally just be in the kitchen and making it. And I'm sure all the listeners will have their own traditions, but it's really special to see now this being my first contest on the ground here that I feel like I'm in the process of beginning to grow and make my own traditions. And you obviously having done this will have a lot of your own traditions from this experience. And yeah, it is. It is the most wonderful time of the year, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know if you've got the rights to that song. but Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. We have a big grand final to preview. We do. Should we get into it? Yeah. So as mentioned on yesterday's podcast, we are going to go through the running order. Um, Czech Republic are opening the show, uh, followed by Romania, Portugal, Finland, Switzerland, France, Norway, Armenia, Italy, Spain, Netherlands, Ukraine, Germany. That's what the top half ended up looking like. And then the bottom half goes Lithuania, Azerbaijan, Belgium, Greece, Iceland, Moldova, Sweden, Australia, UK, Poland, Serbia, and Estonia. Um, now, obviously, I appreciate that's a lot of country names to kind of throw at you, John. And very fortunately, the wonderful Ben Robertson has done a whole piece on the website that kind of analyzes this running order and what it means and what we should be looking out for. But what are your initial thoughts on how this running order has come together? Well, the first thought is that there is definitely going to be a section in that second half where if you need to go to the toilet or top up your drinks, you'll have an opportunity. <laughs> because there is a real energy problem between Germany and Iceland. There's a six song run of quite low energy songs. So if you're here for a party song, that can be your opportunity. But make sure you are back in time for Moldova because Moldova are serving the party. 
And in terms of party songs, the other thing that I noted, Romania in the deaf slot, the traditional slot of deaf, being in second place never tends to bode well. Um, no one has ever won from second. Romania were never going to win anyway, I don't think. I don't think that was ever on the cards. But I have a sneaking suspicion that Romania went big, big, big on the televote yesterday in the semi-finals. And it feels a little bit of a missed opportunity to have it thrown away in that slot, but maybe it can even overcome that. Again, I'm not saying it's going to win by any stretch of the imagination, but I think there's going to be a sizable televote for Romania, and that could have been a lot higher if they'd had a more, um, a more flattering draw. What I would say about the Italians and their choices regarding the running order this year is it's been very clear to me that they have not been interested in a lot of the kind of classic tropes of a running order. So whereas the Dutch organizers, the Swedish organizers, even in Ukraine and Portugal and Israel, they were happy to sort of say, right, what works in that second slot? Italy have said, well, let's try something new and experiment with it. I don't see the choices they made as kind of saying, well, Romania, you know, we're putting it in the death slot. Mm -hmm. I see it more as, let's double everything up so that we kind of offer two options as your opening and two options as your kind of, uh, you know, secondy slot, you know, to kind of build you into the show. You know, two options as your kind of closer. And you see that, like if you, if you look at the semi-final running orders, if you look at this running order, it goes in pairs really nicely. And I don't know if that's something that's gonna be replicated another year. We may just go back to the kind of the usual system, but, it's a nice thing to see a host try and do something different and try and do something new because an experiment is worth a thousand expert opinions. Absolutely, absolutely. And I will say, as much as I wish Romania was in a, di a different slot, actually, it's a great high-energy opener to the show to have Czech Republic with their massive like nightclub banger kicking us off and then straight into Romania with a classic Eurovision cheesy, brilliant, highly choreographed routine. I think that, that is really going to immediately tell people, okay, yeah, we're in safe hands. It is, this is Eurovision, this is what we want. And then obviously, as the show goes on, you, some of the more challenging songs are going to come in, but the, the viewers are going to be eased very easily into an up a fun, up-tempo start. And I think that is definitely a smart choice. Now, we've been looking at the semi-finals for so long, but what that's meant is that we haven't really taken much opportunity to chat about the big five. Mm -hmm. um, we saw them in rehearsal yesterday, mm -hmm. but this is the first time that we're seeing them competitively and we're seeing them stack up against all the other songs in the usual running order. How do you think they're doing? It's a good, good year for the Big Five. Traditionally, in the past few years, the Big Five have really kind of struggled. Often the Big Five have been near, kind of grouped together, with the exception of Italy, who've consistently been very strong since they came back in 2011, which is very much to do with the fact that San Remo, the festival they use to choose your, their Eurovision entry, is very much its own beast and attracts the highest caliber of Italian recording artists and songwriters. But for Germany, France, UK and Spain, there's been more failures than successes, particularly for Spain and the UK. Um, this year though, they're pretty much all bringing it. Germany, I think, is on a slightly lower level to the other ones, and I'm not, I don't have high expectations for their song in terms of a result. But certainly the UK and Spain have come to win, and France are also coming very strong indeed. And Italy, of course, have two absolute local megastars who have gone massive all over this part of Europe. So it's very, very strong for the Big Five, and I think only Germany is at any risk whatsoever of falling into the bottom five. I think the thing that really impresses me about the Big Five this year 
is that all of them have brought something that is memorable. Mm-hmm. Whether it's the piano-led, passionately performed ballad of Italy, or the fire and Breton spirit of France, or whether it's the kind of loop technique, or the kind of thing where he's playing all the instruments of Malik and Germany, or it's Sam's amazing spacesuit, or it's the matador dance spectacular that is Chanel. Like, the biggest problem that the Big Five have had in recent years is that their songs haven't been particularly memorable or they haven't been staged properly and, you know, it's not that they've been bad, but it's just been the case of why is somebody going to pick up the phone and vote for that? (laughs) Whereas, from my kind of analytical position, I completely understand why you would pick up the phone and vote for all five of them. Mm -hmm. I think one problem that the Big Five have shared, again with the exception of Italy, uh, but the big, the other four, I guess, the big four, is that their music industry is maybe a big enough and self-sustaining enough that, that their top-level artists. This is certainly the case in the UK. You know, Adele is never going to enter the Eurovision Song Contest. We know this. You know, Norm maybe should she. You know, but the point I'm making is that high caliber of artists we have struggled to attract in the past, and I think that might also be the case for France and Spain and Germany from time to time. Although they have sent big names occasionally, uh, but this year. You know, Sam Ryder, a huge, huge star in his world on TikTok. Um, you know, Chanel, a new face, but she's really delivered a fantastic state, stage show and worked really hard, really smart at it. Um, France and Germany as well, they're, they're not necessarily established stars, but they've kind of compensated for that with really well considered and well, well conceived stage performances and strong songs, well, in the case of France anyway. Yeah, and I don't know if you agree, but as a British Eurovision fan, I acknowledge that there are a lot of complications around our relationship to Eurovision, around our relationship to the continent, around our relationship to this contest. And so I think the main thing I ask from a representative, any representative, is that they come and they put their absolute everything into the entire experience, into the, the press interviews, into the traveling around Europe for the various talk shows, into the vocals, into the performance, And Sam Ryder is an absolutely perfect ambassador because he's embraced all of those things. And while I don't know as much about the other four, I'm sure Chanel has done that because she's really endearing herself into the hearts of Eurovision fans. Um, Mahmoud is already very well known from his experience coming second in Tel Aviv. And... It just feels like there's something in the air that has made these broadcasters go, it's important that we do well at this. Yeah. I think maybe they've looked at what the success has happened with Italy, with a monoskin going global. Listeners, that is the spirit going round this press centre on grand final day here. (laughs) Sorry, you were saying, John. So I think a lot of it might well be to do with Italy winning and winning so big and Monoskin, you know, going global. And I think that's something that a lot of the other countries are going to look at, especially the larger ones, and maybe we can replicate this. Also, specifically in terms of the UK, again, I can't speak to the other broadcasters, but I think the BBC, not to get political particularly, but has been under a lot more pressure recently in terms of the government, um, you know, their relationship with the government and um, their, their position as a independent broadcast public broadcaster you know that, that's not that shouldn't be news to anyone we know that this is this is an ongoing debate and i think the bbc might be 
look into Eurovision now rather than just as a you know something a relatively cheap way to fill some airtime once a year they can now see the benefit of actually showing their worth you know if we were to win the BBC would be responsible for hosting Eurovision and putting that on on the world stage I think I believe the and I get the sense that there's a hunger for that now that has not been present for many a year in the UK. Now, as we mentioned before, that second half of the show is much slower than the first half, which is much more fast-paced, much more energetic. Um, a lot of ballads made it through the semis as we covered on previous podcasts this week. What does that mean in terms of how the voting is going to go down. If we're saying that juries kind of were the ones that were sending those ballads through, obviously the juries can't give sort of positive points to all of them, or could they? It's a good point, it's a good question. We do have these little internal battles. I asked that question, can three quite similar ballads go through? The answer was yes, they absolutely can. And now they're competing with even more in the full 25. So are are the juries going to purely vote for ballads? It's not necessarily always the case that juries just go for ballads. Every year there's up-tempo songs that do well with the juries as well. But yeah, it will be interesting to see if there is a broad consensus among the juries or whether it's kind of all over the place because we've seen examples of both. I remember in 2015, the jury voting was actually quite tedious because every country basically had the same top six. It was you know, in some order, but it was basically Sweden, Russia, Italy, Estonia, Norway, I forget the other one, Latvia, I think. And pretty much every country had that same top six, and the rest were just kind of scraps. Whereas enough, like last year, the joy votes were really spread. They were all over the place, and it was very exciting. And I hope it's more like that this year. I hope the juries, you know, each country has its own favourites, and it isn't a broad consensus. But that consensus can make or break the winner. If, if, if the juries all rally behind a single song, and give it enough of a lead. We've seen it happen before. The televote winner doesn't always win the whole thing. Duncan Lawrence did not win the televote. Jamala did not win the televote, or the jury votes, actually. Um, it, it's, it's been known, it has certainly been known. Um, Sweden didn't win the televote in 2015, for example. The juries can be the deciding factor, and um, but only if they really push very far ahead. It's very easy for us as Eurovision fans to separate kind of every song into, that's a fast one, that's a slow one, that's a banger, that's a ballad. But actually, what I realized watching everything together yesterday, particularly that ones in that run between 13 and 18 that you were talking about before, is that within that, there are so many different genres and styles and color palettes in there that make them all stand out. It's, it's very difficult, for example, to compare Greece to Iceland mm -hmm. because they're very different songs with very different staging and very different lighting and very different singers and very different stylings. Ditto uh, Lithuania and Azerbaijan. And so I think we can't underestimate the fact that viewers at home, if they like a song, if they like a styling, they're not going to think about the fact that it's slow. They're going to think about, well, I just like that. That connects with me. And so to a certain extent, in having a run like that, it's not like it's killing the competition because really it's just giving all these acts a chance to kind of shine in their own way. Mm -hmm. I would agree, but I do think that if you have a lot of slow songs there, there is a fatigue factor, especially this late in the show. Obviously we're talking about songs that are coming about the halfway point, so viewers have already been watching for at least a couple of hours at this point, uh, and that can have a negative impact. However, I do think the 
biggest winner of that section of the running order is Moldova because after that five or six run of quite slow mid-tempo songs Moldova are going to come on as an absolute barnstormer and that is going to really capture people's attention but this is the other really big question if there's a lot of ballads in this grand final what is that going to mean for the bangers left standing does that mean that Moldova suddenly becomes a much more attractive proposition to vote for yes if it tangibly changes the energy in the room I think people will be more inspired to vote for it and I already thought even without that place in the running order Moldova is another one that probably got a very strong televote in its semi-final it's super fun I had friends all over Europe back in the UK saying oh that Moldova song that was great that was Eurovision that was fun and I really think it's going to be a crowd pleaser and also what does it mean for all of those bangers in the top half of this draw for your France's your Norway's your Spain's I mean, obviously, they're in a very different place. And as we've already said numerous times, that running order allocation draw and subsequent running order kind of producer announcement has led to there almost being sort of a block of fast and a block of slow. But is there something that says, well, I've had all these kind of slow songs. Oh, I quite remember the Wolves. They were fun. I'm going to vote for them when the voting opens, even though it was way earlier in the show. Absolutely. I think if you're on in the first five or ten songs, memorability is absolutely key. It is not impossible to win from an early draw, but you really need to be memorable because it needs to get to that last song, the 25th, 26th song of the night, and the viewers still need to be thinking about you. And so it's very important to have something to stand out. If you're dressed as a wolf, people are probably going to remember you at the end. That's a very easy thing to keep in your mind. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. Anybody who goes to check the odds right now will see that Ukraine are absolute runaway favourites. They were already pretty heavy favourites going into the Eurovision fortnight. But as the fortnight has gone on, their odds have shortened and shortened and shortened and shortened to the point where it almost looks like if the bookies are right, this is an absolute landslide victory in the making. Do you think that's what's going to happen? I do not know is the answer to that. (laughs) Naming Um, your colours to the mouse there, Joe. Well, I know, that's a very mealy-mouthed thing to say. Every time anyone's asked me who's going to win this year, I've always said, if it's not Ukraine, it will be because Ukraine is the default answer. As you say, it's the absolute favorite in the odds. And it's really impossible to accurately predict just how big that groundswell of support is going to be. Are people going to vote for that song because of external factors, because they love the song? Both, you know, even if, if there was nothing else happening in the Ukraine, if, if, if the world was a nicer place, um, I think Ukraine would still be among the favourites because it's a very good song and a very good performance. But there's obviously there are other factors at play. We will see. We will see how big it will be and whether it will be, will the juries and the televotes both boost the Ukraine or will there be, will it, or will it be more heavily geared towards the televote and will that be enough to potentially overcome if the juries maybe place them in the lower end of the top 10 or potentially even outside it? It's, it's really hard to say. Yesterday, watching them perform, I saw a real fire in, in the eyes of those performers. Mm-hmm. A real something that says, we can win this, and we feel like we're going to do it. The kind of fire that I saw on the night of the Stockholm final, when Jamala took to the stage, and you just saw her 
tunnel vision focus towards this is mine mm-hmm. and I'm going to take it. And you got that feeling even a little bit with Maniskin last year. You got that feeling with Netta and Toy in 2018. It, it's giving me winner vibes. And I didn't say that at the beginning of the week. I, I saw their kind of initial rehearsal and was sort of like, oh, I don't know about this. Yesterday when I watched them, I was like, yeah, this could do it. And it just goes to show that they're peaking just at the right time. Absolutely, that's really important. And also, if Ukraine do win, it will not be a negative thing. It will not be, you know, people often accuse the Eurovision of being a political contest. And obviously, in this instance, there is a political... It's, it's, it's unavoidable. There is a political angle to Ukraine's being such overwhelming favourites, but I don't think it will be to the detriment of the contest because it's, a still, it's still a really, really good song and a really, really good performance. And it's, you know, it's charting. It's, it's appearing in charts all over Europe right now. So it's not like it's just going to win on some sympathy votes. It it's really does stand on its own. If Ukraine does win, is there an argument to say that all those people in the UK that say Eurovision's just a political song contest and it's just about voting on the politics are right? Or do you think it's a little bit more complicated than that? No, it's not. It, it's, you know, it's not a black or white answer. There, there's always an element of political in everything, anything. Everything is political, to quote Skunk and Nancy. Yes, it's, poli- yes, it's political. Everything's political. Um, however, no, I think, I think it would be a shame if that was the takeaway from this. Because, especially because it's such a positive thing. You know, often when people talk about Eurovision being political, there's this, these ideas that oh, everyone just votes for their neighbours, which, by the way, is rubbish. Obviously, countries that share, cult- share common cultures do, for various reasons, they often do trade points, but it's not, for me, blind nationalism. It's often because of shared musical interests, shared genres, shared languages, artists who are famous in all different regions but also you know if every country voted for its neighbors then the country with the most neighbors would win every year and that isn't the case portugal won with the highest televote on record so far i believe that still record still stands and how many neighbors do they have one they have one land border with spain and that's it so no politics does worm its way into eurovision from time to time and as i said it is a factor this year but there is so much more at play than just you know nationalism or 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 someone quote-unquote not liking a country and voting against them which you can't even do so right it's that time of the podcast okay who's winning tomorrow and why Ooh, ukraine or sweden <laughs> pick one pick oh, one <laughs> you will i'll follow the odds you know i don't want to make you know, you know what yeah it's probably going to be Ukraine. For all the reasons we discussed, there probably will be a very large televote, and that is going to be very difficult for any other country to surmount. However, I do think Sweden comes on incredibly strong. It's in a great position in the running order. It's a song that really is emotionally arresting and it responds well with a lot of people. We're already seeing it hitting the charts, so I think they can put up a really good fight, I think. A very strong contender. I'm going to get serious egg on my face in a few days' time when this result very much doesn't come to pass. But I'm going to say the UK. Wow, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to go that far because I'm going to say, you know what? Sam and that performance will appeal to televoters and juries in equal measure. He absolutely kills that performance when the running order comes on and it looks like it's a lot of slow 
actually Spaceman comes out as being quite rocky because of the way the music goes and the chorus and the big notes. And so actually that combined with his position in the running order, I'm, I'm not saying it'll be easy. I'm not saying it'll be obvious. I'm definitely not saying it's a landslide, but a lot can happen in a Eurovision Song Contest. And if all the stars were going to align to be able to make it happen for the UK, the way the stars have aligned in Turin this week feel exactly like how it would be. And isn't it nice to be able to have that conversation about the UK rather than wondering how badly we're going to do? <laughs> it's so refreshing. And I agree with you. I, I don't necessarily think it's going to quite get all the way over the line, but I do think we're in for our best result in many a year. I asked Nat yesterday on the podcast about what happens if he does come lower down and I've already made my stance on this very clear that for me he's done so much to restore pride in the UK at Eurovision to, to really forward the conversation about what we can do as part of this contest that it feels like the momentum is going to keep building and the positives are going to keep going and going and going as a result of everything he's managed to achieve 100% Right, so there you have it, Manchester 2023, everybody. I'll see, I'll see you there. I'll be on the, on, I'll be in the Euro Club on Canal Street. <laughs> um, hello to the podcast radio listeners. Thank you for tuning in to our show uh, today and all the shows that you've listened to uh, over the last week. Um, whatever happens tonight, wherever you're watching, listeners, just remember this is grand final night of the Eurovision Song Contest. It's the most wonderful day of the year, and so whatever you're up to, have an amazing time. See you on the other side. Here are the guitars. You've been listening to the ESC Insight Daily News Podcast, hosted by Finn Ross Russell and John Lucas. Find out more by heading to escinsight.com and support the work we do at patreon.com slash escinsight.